whatever you've been up to today, when, when we start singing and we hear this music, does that happen to you where your soul just kind of opens up and, and we get, thank you, Rick, for, for hitting refresh and restart for us so that we're open tonight. Hey, if you weren't here last night, my name is Chris. I'm from California and it's going to be okay. That's my line and I'm sticking to it. I'm from the Pacific Northwest, but we've been in California for a few years. We thought we would just get into California, get educated, go back home to Oregon, and it didn't work that way. Are we having issues? Is that me? Hmm. Powers I didn't know I had. They're not really pleasant powers, though, are they? Is it, are we good now? Okay. Maybe it's a... Anyway, we'll see. <laughs> So, so we've been in California a lot of years. That doesn't look like we're getting back to Portland anytime soon. Portland is our home, and in the meantime, we're missionaries in Southern California. My husband teaches at Loma Linda, medical students. If anybody's headed there to study medicine, that is his shtick. He'll be here on the weekend, so we'll get to introduce him to you then. Margaret Atwood, I don't know if you read this novelist. She's Canadian. She's a poet and a novelist. Hits back, isn't it? She is Canadian. Are you saying amen? Yeah. Are you the only one in the room? Canadian? Yeah. Probably. One amen for Margaret Atwood. <laughs> Margaret Atwood is a Canadian author, novelist, poet, right? She writes a little piece that's entitled Happy Endings. Give me a second. I'm going to clip this on the outside because sometimes microphones don't like strangers. We'll see if that works. But, you know, just telling the truth. So Margaret Atwood tells this little story called Happy Endings, and, and she says... Um, really, why don't you just pick your ending to this story? Here's the beginning of the story. John meets Mary. And she asks the question, what would you like to have happen next in order for there to be a happy ending? John meets Mary. What should happen next? So, version A of the story. John meets Mary. They fall madly in love and they get married and they buy a house John and Mary both have careers they love. They're, they contribute in the world. They have 2.5 children. They take vacations. They take vacations to extraordinary places. Their children actually turn out. For those of you who've raised children, you know. Their children actually turn out. They retire. They settle down and have hobbies. They grow old together. And then they die. The end. And then she asks the question, did you, did you like that ending? Hey, can I just have a handheld mic? I think, can I, where's, where's the guy? Where's our, thank you. We'll just turn this thing off. That's, that's, um, thank you. That's ending A to the story. So then she says, you don't like that story? Let's try version B. Here's version B to the story. John meets Mary. Well, Mary loves John, but John doesn't actually love Mary, but they get together anyway. They get married and they settle down and they have a so-so life. They come and go. They live in the same space. 
Then one day, one of Mary's friends sees John out in public, and she sees John having supper with a woman named Madge, comes home and tells Mary, I saw John with Madge. Mary's distraught. She's angry. She decides to gather all the medication in the house. She's going to take all the pills. She secretly hopes that John will intervene. He'll come and save her, but he doesn't. Mary takes the pills. Mary dies. John marries Madge. John and Mary live happily ever after. Then John and Madge die. The end. And Margaret Atwood likes, did you, do we like that ending better? Okay, let's try version three, same author. John meets Mary. They get married. They live happily ever after. They buy their house, and one day they learn a tidal wave is coming to town. The real estate properties drop. The values drop. They can't sell their house. The rest of the story is about how the tidal wave comes and wipes out the whole village. But... John and Mary, they cling to each other. They climb the highest mountain, soaking wet. They survive the tidal wave. The rest of the story goes on as in version A. John and Mary die. The end. Margaret Atwood says, Well, if you're bored with any of those three, make Mary a, a counterintelligence officer, and John could be a spy for the enemy nation. And they get married, and it continues as in version A, and then they die. Her thesis. Any other ending is sentimental. It's overly romantic. It's not realistic. In the end, we all die. Margaret Atwood says, I was raised in the Seventh-day Adventist church. I know something about a faith tradition that's been very focused on the end. Now, hear me clearly tonight, especially you who just dropped into Snoop. What does the girl from California say? Hear me very clearly tonight. I was adopted at one day old from an Adventist hospital, and I was in church the next week. And I haven't left ever since. Born and raised in this faith tradition, Christian first, Adventist second. I think I'll be Adventist until Jesus takes us home. So I ask you tonight to hear the conversation from within this context. I've been raised and shaped by this tradition that's also been very concerned about the end. The chaos that is to come. In fact, that, the focus of the earliest conversations of the early Advent believers who gathered at camp meetings like this, from our earliest days, we've been concerned about those final days, the chaos that will come, and how do we survive? How do we all get our happy ending? I've been shaped by this faith tradition that had this focus. Margaret Atwood actually... Um, not Christian, not caring about these things, but she makes an interesting point that in the end, we all die. In Adventist Christianity, in all Christianity, we really teach that Jesus is our only hope. If we hope to survive this chaos at the end, then we need to know Jesus. Hey, my Sabbath school teachers, my parents, everyone taught me, it's not what we know, it's who we know. We need to know Jesus. You want hope for the chaos at the end of all things? Then we should know Jesus. And these are our proof texts, the memory verses that we reach for when we talk about this. 1 John 5, whoever has the Son has what? Has life. 
Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. The fourth gospel, the gospel of John, also says in chapter 14, no one comes to the Father except through me. It's simple. No questions asked. Know Jesus? Great. You don't know Jesus? That's a trouble. We all need to know Jesus. We teach this. The Bible says this. I call it true truth. Like, it doesn't get any truer than this. True truth right there. And, And still, something could be unsettling about this. Something in you, maybe, like something in me, is a little unsettled. When we're unsettled with Scripture, friends, when it troubles us, that's when we lean into it even further. And we read it again. What could be troubling about this? Well, first of all, it sort of sets up uh, us and them, right? You're either in or you're out. You either know Jesus or you don't. It sort of feels like it puts in place a hierarchy and a privileged status All that stuff Jesus tore down when Jesus was on earth. It sort of feels we can get uncomfortable. If if we have the truth, too bad you don't. If you knew Jesus, you'd be like us too. And we're not a whole lot of fun when we walk around the world that way, by the way. So we feel a little uncomfortable with this truth. Maybe for that reason. Maybe we feel a little uncomfortable because, listen, we're also not ready to say it it just doesn't matter. Be generous people and decent people in the world and it'll all work out in the end. Maybe we're not ready to go there either because our identity in Jesus, boy, this is who I am. I don't want to throw that away. Maybe we're also uncomfortable because... We all know people who don't claim Jesus, who don't claim the Christian faith, and they are superb people moving around the world. Do you know some people like this? They're good and generous and kind and giving and sacrificial. Some of them have been your strongest mentors in life. In church a few weeks ago, I asked a question during the sermon, why do you come here? What what does this do for you week by week that you come to a church and you come to worship? We had people text in their answers, and I was reading off of my cell phone. Up popped an answer from a gentleman who signed his name, and he said, I come to this church because you people seem really nice. I like you. I don't really like Jesus, and I'm not a Christian. But I come. All sorts of people moving around the world who are good, kind, generous, decent people. Maybe we feel tension because these people seem like the people God would want in heaven, doesn't, don't they? They're making the world a better place right now. Know Jesus, it's all good. If you don't know Jesus, you better look out. We feel tension. And so we lean into the scripture even more deeply. When these things are said, what in the world is going on? Come, if you, anyone who has the Son has life. No one comes to the Father except if they come through me. Jesus, in that, that was you. I swear it was you. It's always the man's fault. I can tell you have some feelings there. I almost feel like we should stop and have special prayer for you. <laughs> that was very dramatic. That's all I'm talking about. <laughs> it's going to be okay, okay friend. 
we're going to lean into the John 4 text in particular. No one, or John 14, no one comes to the Father except through me. Because, you know, we're very good at harvesting texts from the Bible and throwing them around the world, right? We're very good at this proof texting. What's happening in that story? In John chapter 14, Jesus and the disciples have just had that meal and the foot washing that we all do in our churches. That gesture we imitate, the final meal. And that's when Jesus says to them, my children, I will only be with you for a little while. I'm about to leave and where I'm going you cannot come. Simon Peter says, wait, 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 wait. Where, where are you going? Tell us where you, how will we know the way? We want to go where you're going, Jesus. It goes on for several verses. There's panic that sets in. There's a crisis. Living in, with Jesus in the absence of Jesus, immediately the disciples are thrown into a panic. I think we should read all of the rest of the chapter and the next couple chapters as crisis material. This is the gospel that began, in the beginning was the word, and the word became flesh, and the word was with God, and the word was God, and the word, what? Dwelt among them. God with us can't leave us. Jesus, where are you going? We want to come with you. There's a crisis going on, and when Jesus begins to address the crisis, this is the conversation that unfolds in John chapter 14. We'll read six verses here together. You don't have to read out loud. I'll read them for you. Thomas said to him, this is still the same crisis conversation. Thomas said, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus answered, I I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him. You have seen him, the Father. Now Philip, another disciple, he chimes in. Lord, show us the Father. That'll be enough. We'll we'll put this to, to rest. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been among you such a long time? You still have to ask this question? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus repeats it again. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am the Father and the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I don't speak on my own authority. It's the Father living in me, doing the Father's work. And out of those six verses, what is the most often quoted sentence there? I am the way, the truth, and the life. Out of the whole conversation, that's the passage that we tend to pull. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Oh, the specialists, the people, the theologians who write about these things, they tell us we've landed onto a huge truth in the Bible when Jesus talks this way. They have a word for it. They call it Christology. And it's beautiful, and we're to mine the truths of what this means. But I want to tell you tonight that I don't think Jesus is writing doctrine that disciples will later quote. All right? Jesus is in the middle of a crisis. 
So he's, his first goal is to calm their spirits. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So even if I leave, we're going to be in this together. It'll still be a few paragraphs before Jesus gets to the point. And by the way, we'll, we'll send the comforter. Another one is coming to be with you who will remind you what you've seen, who, uh, who will remind you what you've observed. God was with you. God is with you. God will be with you. This is the nature of the conversation Jesus is having with the disciples. Now, please notice tonight what Jesus did not say. Jesus did not say, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and I will block anyone from getting to the Father unless they stop by me first. Jesus did not say, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and I will block anyone who doesn't pray the sinner's prayer, join a doctrine or a Bible study group, and get baptized and proclaim my name. Please notice what Jesus does not say in this paragraph. He says none of these things because he's responding to human crisis. And we're not different today. Where you live and where I live, and I happen to notice that people in Carolina are a lot like people in California. We're very similar. When I was at the restaurant having my barbecue the other day, barbecue tempeh for the vegetarian, I was watching a family having prayer, three children and two adults, and they all held hands, and the two, as soon as the adults bowed their head to pray, The children made sure the parents' eyes were closed, and then the two little children started sticking their tongue out at each other, and the teenager went to his cell phone while the food was being blessed. I thought it was charming. Uh, Families are families everywhere. (laughs) We have the same problem, in other words, that the disciples had. Our crisis is living with Jesus in the absence of Jesus. Our situation is no different. Jesus, how is it we do this life without you here? Today, we have the same problem. I am persuaded by this author, Stephen J. Patterson. The name of his book is called Rethinking the Death and Life of Jesus. I'm persuaded by Stephen Patterson's thought here. Can I read this to you? He says that when we look at our lives, we see how messy our lives are. We're anxious about our own choices and our own consequences. When we take inventory of what our lives really look like today, we're concerned about our present and our future. And we look for assurance, all of us. We look for assurance that we will be saved from our sins. We do look to see how will we survive that final chaos, that end of time event. Stephen Patterson says, We we all want to live forever, an eternal future, and it's all what we seem to want to hear today. It's what we teach, it's what we sing about, it's what we profess. Everything Jesus did on earth before he died his carefully chosen teachings, his respect and nourishment of others, the challenges he presented to those who abused power, and every compassionate act he did. Those things are nice, but what we really need is the Jesus who saves us from our sins. I think he uses this line, what we really need is the dead Jesus. So we know we'll all live forever. It's an interesting thought. We all need that 
Jesus. A man walked into my office last year. He was an older guy, 70s. He didn't know me. He just wanted to see the pastor. I sat down with him, scruffy guy. I don't know his living environment. He said he just lived a few blocks from the church. Shook his hand. His name was Daniel. I said, Daniel, let's have a conversation. He sat down in the chair, looked me in the eyes and said, I just need to be baptized. Can you do that? I said, I can. Can we talk about this? Tell me about your life. Tell me where you grew up. Tell me about your family. Do you have children? Tell me. And he said maybe two or three sentences. His parents owned a business downtown. He lived two or three blocks from the church. He had a son. I just need to be baptized. Can you do that? Pointed straight at me. I reached for the Bible, began to open the Bible. Because you know us pastors, we are trained to do this thing. You're supposed to open the Bible. You're supposed to go to the Gospel of John and say... You know, if you've seen the son, you've seen the father. Do you claim this son? You're supposed to do all of that. So I opened the Bible and said to Daniel, you familiar at all with the Bible? Well, I was raised in a sort of Adventist home. Yeah, I know. Daniel and Revelation and there's stuff in between. I just need to get baptized. Can you do that? So I took a deep breath and thought, wow, I don't, wow, wow. Try one more time. Do you have a favorite do you have a favorite memory of growing up in a Christian home, Daniel? He said, um, no, but I know that the end is coming. And then he just went nuts on stuff I'd never heard of. He was anxious about the end that was coming. And conspiracy theories and the skies are falling and he's stocking up and, and I just need to get baptized. He stands up, pushes the chair back, looks at me and says, can you do this or not? This is a Tuesday. I said, Daniel, I'm going to be here on Saturday morning. I'm going to meet you at 9 o'clock at the door. We have church. If you come a little before 9, I'll show you where. Nope, I don't need any of that. I just need to get in the water. I'll meet you at 9 o'clock at the door. I'll show you where to go. Got upstairs Sabbath morning. First time I've ever done this. Got upstairs in the morning told the deacons, I'm a little concerned. Can you please be close? I'm a little concerned. It's unusual. Walked in, Daniel was already in his baptismal gown. He looked right at me, shook my hand, and he said, good morning, John. I said, hey, Daniel, it's Chris here. He's like, yeah, well, they might call you Chris, but today you're my John, John the Baptist. Fifteen minutes later, we got into the water. Five minutes after that, Daniel was dressed out the front door, walked down the street, and we have not seen him since. Something deep inside of Daniel was not right about the end. And he needed to make that right. We get, we get stirred up about these things. We get anxious about this, right? Stephen Patterson says, we get so anxious about that that sometimes we skip right over the Jesus who lived and walked and breathed and changed the earth. It only takes a few hundred years before Jesus is gone. In the 4th century, the late 4th century, a group of Christians gather, and they try and decide, well, what can we say we know about this Jesus? Let's see. We'll try and put our words together. And they, chew, they do a few short sentences. We call them creeds. This is, one of the, or this is the earliest creed from the 4th century. This is the summary in the year 390 or so of what Christians thought they could say about Jesus. 
about God and Jesus in particular. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into the heaven, and he sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. We're going to leave it on the screen for you for a moment. The creed goes on. This is the Apostles' Creed. It goes on to say, I believe in the forgiveness of the sins, the resurrection, and life ever after. Amen. Today, this Apostles' Creed is still said in many Christian churches around the world, right? It's five sentences up there. Can someone point to me and tell, tell us what is the sentence that addresses the living, moving, breathing Jesus? He's born. He's born under Pontius Pilate. He's born under the, with the Spirit, the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pilate. He's crucified. He died, and he was buried. That's it. This is a few hundred years after Jesus is gone, and this is what they can say about Jesus. And it's curious to me. Where is the sentence that talks about the Jesus who wandered around eating meals with people who weren't worthy? Where's the Jesus who doesn't have a home or possessions, who takes food from people who will serve him, who devotes his life to others? Where's the sentence about the Jesus committed to justice, kindness, mercy, forgiveness? Where are the sentences that say, this Jesus had a small band of followers. Yeah, they weren't, they weren't warriors. They were peasants who forsook everything and reshaped their life to live with this Jesus. Where are the sentences that say, Before Jesus died, he lived. He lived for something. I'm longing for something in the creed that says that. Before Jesus died, Jesus lived. I believe Jesus is what Jesus does. I believe in taking up the life of Jesus and making it my own. I'm missing that in these early statements that actually have shaped us today. There's tension over this topic, and I think that maybe we're creating some of the tension. So I'm going to say it as clear as I can tonight. If you're having an argument or a conversation with someone who says that they don't really believe in Jesus, I'm wondering if we are creating the tension, if we've set up an argument that's actually not scriptural. Because in the Gospel of John... In the Gospel of John, and actually all through the rest of the Bible, it is never our work to save people. The church is not in the business of saving people. The church is not in the business of sin management. The church is not in the business of calling people's sin out and getting people to confess to their sin, are we? That is not our work. That's the work of the Spirit. That is God's work. Further, in this passage in the Bible... um, When Jesus talks with the disciples, the conversation goes on like this. In the fourth gospel, Jesus gets close to Peter. You you might remember the story after the resurrection. Jesus says to Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Three times Peter gets the question. Three times Peter answers the very same thing. And then Jesus says, good, feed, do my work, right? 
they're having this close, intimate moment, and out of the corner of Peter's eye, Peter notices another guy. There's another disciple who's been in the story competing all along. His name is just the disciple whom Jesus loved. Peter sees that guy out of the corner of his eye, and he says to Jesus, Hey, what about him? Aren't you going to require something of him? Jesus says to Peter, what is it to you if I save him, if I allow him to live? Peter, God's going to save who God's going to save. Get a life, Peter. Your life is with me. I wonder if we have set up a conversation that actually the text isn't even addressing, right? And that if we have, we could just drop that tonight. I grew up in a church that was very concerned with these things, as I've already told you. That the end of time, that we be ready, that we get as many people ready. And then we, in, the, in the church I grew up, it's almost like every week we forgot we were all we're ready. So every week we came to church kind of needing to confess all over again as if we lost our salvation during the week and we needed to retrieve it on Sabbath. As if there was something we could do to change God's mind this week about us. Friends, there is nothing we will ever do to make God love us more. Nothing we will do to make God love us less. If that is not the thing we have to worry about, then we can take seriously the Jesus that's in front of us. In the text, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Do you notice the order of that verse? I am the way, the truth, the life. It doesn't say, I am the truth, the life, the way. Look at the order of this. I think it matters. Only time in the Bible, Jesus says these words, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Those first Christian believers in Acts, they call themselves the people of the way. The way, that becomes language for the people on the way, following Jesus. The people shaping their lives, molding their lives, imitating. They're on the road, on the path, on the way with Jesus. And it occurs to me that it is the way of Jesus that leads us to the truth of Jesus. It's the way of Jesus, compassion, mercy, forgiveness, kindness. It's the way of Jesus that finally brings fully alive the truth of Jesus. Because we're not having a transaction, we're having a relationship. I am the way first, Jesus says in the story. Yeah, who we know matters for our eternal future. But it is the ways in which we know Jesus that bring us to this full truth. In the Margaret Atwood story, we began with, in the beginning, she's pick your ending because in the end we all die Where she goes next in that story is this. She says, it's the in-between that I'd like to talk about. It is the in-between Jesus was working on. It is the today in-between. It is not all of our energy for someday way beyond the blue. The truth is heaven is already pushing into earth now. Every good thing that happened to you today, that was just a little taste of heaven. The Sabbath that comes to us in a few days, just a little taste of heaven. So it is the in-between that the living, breathing, moving Jesus teaches about. I want to invite you to trust your instincts then for compassion and tenderness and justice and kindness and mercy. When you come to those instincts in your life, you have come into the way of Jesus. 
And that way of Jesus leads us to the truth of Jesus. Day by day, experience by experience. Last night I told you about a guy with a megaphone standing out at the courtyard. Do you, some of you were here and you heard the story? Who was here and heard the story and would be willing to tell somebody? Hi. Would you be willing to tell somebody what the story was? You don't remember. <laughs> How did it begin? Guy has a megaphone. Oh, what's he doing? Uh, he was talking. <laughs> somebody else hear the story last night? You, you know he was talking to the people standing in line, right? So people, I'm going to tell you the story again, and I might tell you it again before the week is over. This becomes such a significant symbol of the way we hear Jesus talked about in our world. He's standing on the sidewalk while we're all lined up to see the judge because we all have to get inside and get our parking tickets cleared or whatever we've done wrong. He's got a megaphone in his hand, and he says to the people, that he's the king of king and the lord of lords and he's coming back, all right. He's coming back for you. He's coming back to take care of your sins. What'd you do? Did you steal? Did you hurt someone? Did you kill someone? Did you molest little children? Go ahead and go inside. Have your day with the judge today. But you should know your face-to-face is coming. We call it a come-to-Jesus moment. The king of kings and the lord of lords, he's coming back for you. Which Jesus is this man promoting? See, the truth is I could pull an incident one a day from any one of our cities all around just our country where angry Christians are standing up promoting that Jesus. And all Jesus asked for us to do was get on the way with him. I have a friend who says, Jesus doesn't need more prosecuting attorneys. He needs more witnesses. So the better conversation we could have with people could be to tell them what difference it made in our life this week that we're on the way with Jesus. How is your life better this week because you're on the way with Jesus? How are your relationships stronger? How is your anxiety less? How is your doubt about the future calmed because we're on the way with Jesus? It matters who we know. God is going to take care of that final day. It's the in-between. Jesus lives with us in this in-between I watched this. Did you? some of you take in this uh, in 2012? Nick Walenda decided to continue his family tradition. We're just going to look at a few pictures while I talk. This is Nick Walenda at the Niagara Falls. It's a $1.2 million adventure. His family, they're acrobatic. They're an acrobatic family. He decides to put a tightrope across the Niagara Falls. He puts on his walking shoes, and he decides to walk across the tightrope. Did some of you see this maybe live? Where I was living, um, I had to watch the recording of it later. When I watched this begin to happen, it totally freaked me out. $1.2 million, he decides he's going to, oh, why not just walk across Niagara Falls? <laughs> because that's what he can do. This is just, you know, four years ago. So he puts the rope out and he begins to walk across the waterfalls and all the people are watching. The little town on the 
uh, New York side of the falls has all but shriveled up and died. There's no economy there, tiny little town. He makes his way across the falls. When he gets to the Canadian side, he actually, while he's on the wire, look at that. Look at that. I looked at that picture and thought, what is your mama saying right now? Like you have aunties and uncles and people gathered around a screen who are looking at this going, what in the world? He gets to the other side of the falls where the crowd is cheering and the cameras, they televised this live, friends. Maybe some of you didn't watch it because it was on the Sabbath. And that, maybe that's why you didn't tell me if you watched it. It was on Friday night. He gets to the other side of the falls. He pulls out his passport and he hands his passport to the passport authority on the border there. And the crowd just cheers. The place erupts. This kid, he's not really a kid anymore. His family, they trace their origin to Bulgaria and Romania in the 18th, mid-18th century. The whole family, they're all acrobats, right? There's a picture. This is what his family does. I was thinking when I watched him cross Niagara Falls, somebody's sitting at home going, what's the boy doing over the waterfall? We were just training him to join the circus. And he puts a rope across Niagara Falls. You know, I'm looking out at your faces tonight, the young adults in particular, and I know in the church, sometimes the older generations look at you and say, I don't know, we get a little nervous what you're going to do with the church. We have all this tradition we're passing on to you. We get worried when we see the next generation reinterpret tradition with their own language and their own ideas. I'm looking out at your faces tonight. I'm just one adult who serves the church, but I want to tell you, I am not worried about what you'll do with the church. I am not worried about what you'll do with Jesus. In fact, I am eagerly awaiting. You all seem to get that we can live with a disagreement of opinions, but we cannot live with a deficit of love. Now, if you get that, you are on the way with Jesus. I can't wait to see what you're doing with Jesus in our world, friends. Which Jesus? The Jesus on the cross? It's the same Jesus of the way. I invite you to sing as we reflect tonight.